Last week, we, uh, we saw a tremendous study uh, on the potential of the book of Proverbs. And I wanted to show you uh, how that uh, the book of Proverbs is not only one of the greatest practical books in the Bible, maybe the greatest practical book in the Bible, but there's also much depth to it as far as all the uh, aspects of, of what God is doing down through history and certainly in the future. We saw how this book really reveals so much to us about really what's going on around us. And as I said, back through history and yet even into the future. And for those of you that are maybe visiting today or uh, haven't gone for a while, uh, we, we have been in the study of the book of Proverbs. And one of the things that we have been focusing on and trying to do is to give everybody a great understanding of how this book really works. And, um, you know, I've talked about how that the first seven chapters uh, really is an introduction to the book. It's like a preparatory section. It begins to talk about the things that uh, really uh, make a difference uh, uh, in the book, show you the things to look for, the things that you want to uh, grasp, the things that you want to, to get in your life before you even start to study the book. And this will be our last message today uh, in that preparatory section. Next week, we'll tackle chapter 8, and we'll begin officially uh, the Proverbs, because that's where they start. I showed you how that every chapter uh, basically starts out with my son, and then gives instructions to us as God's son about what we're to learn and what we're to put in our lives to glean from Proverbs, but also historically from the nation of Israel as God's son. Uh, and obviously, uh, in, his, in the context, uh, Solomon was talking to his own son and uh, giving him the advice that he had. So we have seen a lot of different things about Proverbs. And last week, I, I took our people down and really uh, showed them the depth of the things in the Bible. And we talked about the absolute importance of three crucial words in our life and our Christian walk. The first one is the word of perception. Perception is our ability to see something as it really is. Not many people have perception today. They see things and they see it as it appears. Perception is the ability to see any circumstance or situation and see it as it really is, not as it appears. The second key word that we've talked about all through here is the word uh, uh, discernment. And the word discernment basically carries with it our ability to see the same situation, not only see it for what it is, but then see what God's doing in it. Many of you begin that basic format. I've had several phone calls this week from people who were, you know, at work. Sean called me yesterday and some others you called me uh, this week and, you know, you were at work and somebody came in. And, and God gave you the opportunity to, to talk to them. And uh, in one particular case, they were going to someplace else. And the wife said, let's try here first. And when they went there, God orchestrated the events uh, for that person uh, to be able to talk to them and invite them to church and, and talk to them about the Bible. And uh, it, it is a, it very few Christians can, can see that opportunity when it unfolds itself around them. That's discernment. That's the ability to see that God has orchestrated this situation and put me in the middle of it because he has something he wants me to do. And then the third key word is the word discretion. 
And that is the ability to look at something, see whether God's in it or not, and then make the choice in your life, do I want to be a part of this or not? And that is what discretion brings to the party. It gives you the ability to look at any circumstance or situation and then evaluate it on how it's going to impact you in your walk with God. Some things you'll want in your life, some things you will not want to allow in your life. And, uh, now, and then after last week, we had incredible insight into this strange woman that we've been talking about. All through Proverbs, three or four times now, we found this woman who's painted up as a harlot. And uh, we, we now have identified her. It's been a developing story. We've seen her connection to the second character in the book of Proverbs, the evil man. And we have, in past weeks, laid that all out. And we saw how that it relates to us in our living today. We know now that the woman itself uh, in Proverbs, this, this harlot that the Bible talks about, is a picture of the false religions of the world. And we know that it centers around uh, the concept of Babylon mystery uh, religion, the mother of harlots in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. We also understand from our past studies that the evil man is a picture of the world system. What Proverbs begins to show us is that there's a marriage made down through history between the false religions of the world and the false political systems of the world, and they forge together under the devil's uh, usage to be able to deceive uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of people uh, in exactly what they do. We also saw the great nighttime, didn't we? And I showed you how that in the Bible, when you find the word nighttime or a story about the nighttime, it's going to be a picture of the church age. And I ran you back to oh, four or five different passages that showed you that. We spent a lot of time with that. We talked about the four watches that I left up here, and I went through those last week and showed you how that they cover the expanse of the church age, and it's a picture of the night of the church age, nighttime. And in Mark chapter 13, we went there, and I showed you that it represents the 2,000 years or so of church history, and then Christ coming in the fourth watch, uh, at the, in the morning, and I gave you all the verses that supported that and, and showed you that. And then uh, we came through uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 48, which I think is, is our perspective. It showed the apostles going out into the storm, God sending them out, and them toiling and rowing in the storm in the middle of the night. And I showed you how that's such a perfect picture of where you and I are at today. The Lord had departed from them. He's in a mountain praying for them. Picture of Christ interceding for us as we're down here at the right hand of God the Father. And the Bible, we talked about that our job is not to focus on the storm or the wind of this world because it's always going to be contrary to us. And we talked about that our job today in this church and Christians all around this world who take God and the Bible seriously is to simply row the boat. We've got a job to do. We've got things we've got to get done. And that's, that's the function of the church. And yet, you know, I did that last week because I wanted to show you the depth of the book of Proverbs. And yet, uh, the whole Bible uh, basically is the same way. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, the Word of God is called the unsearchable riches. It's an eternal book written by an eternal God. And it, it's eternal in the sense that it never, it, there's no end to it. Every book, every chapter will yield the great truths uh, and depths uh, of the Bible itself, and it's unbelievable. Uh, look over to Ephesians chapter 3, if you would, 
I want to give you a verse that goes along with this. And I think it's one of the greatest passages in all the Bible that is written directly to me and you, uh, the church, uh, about uh, what God wants for us to have. And he says in Ephesians chapter 3, and you probably already know that the book of Ephesians was written by Paul to the church to define the church. That's the whole theme of the book of Ephesians. And it says in verse 16 of chapter 3 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, now watch it very carefully, what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, I don't know if you can grasp this verse and all that it deals with, but it talks about the fact that in our, in our physical world that we live in, it's three-dimensional. Everything we see in life has three parts to it. It'll have a length, it'll have a width, and it'll have a, it'll have a height. And life with God, for a Christian, we talk about the supernatural life with God. The thing that makes a Christian, or the thing that should make a Christian's life different than an unsaved person in the world is that a Christian and an unsaved person uh, both live in a three-dimensional world. The thing that makes the Christian's life supernatural is the fourth dimension, which is God in our lives. That fourth dimension is what he talks about here. And uh, my goal for you in this church, you know, is to fill in the blanks of the missing element in our lives. I have one goal for you in all that I do with the Bible. I have one overall goal for this church that I, I do with the Bible. And that is to get you, as the Bible says, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit of God when you got saved. I'm talking about your ability to use those three concepts, perception, discernment, and discretion, to understand the depth of God and the Word of God that you had. Last week in Proverbs, when we went into there and took all that out, that was just a glimpse of what the whole Bible does for you. Unfortunately, most Christians are not only not fourth-dimension Christians, most Christians today are not even three-dimensional Christians. Most Christians today are, are one-dimensional. All they see is themselves. All they see is what they want. They don't see what around them, the world that is lost and dying and going to hell. They don't ever get to the fourth dimension that shows you the great unsearchable riches of God. All of their life, it's all transfixed about them. They want to be the center of the world. They want their, their, they're the center of everything in their life. And their life is simply, as a child of God, and it's a terrible state to be in, one-dimensional. It's all about them. And yet the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, that we should be able to comprehend with all the saints what he says is the breath of God. Now, the breath of God would be the width of God, and that would deal with the mercy of God. That's what it's a picture of. When you want to study, you want to study the, uh, uh, the breath of God, you're going to see uh, the mercy of God, how much mercy God has. And, you know, I used to ask my kids when they were growing up, how much do you love your dad? And they used to go, this much, you know. And it's showing you that's the width. Well, you know, even at that, and I know that they loved me, uh, and I knew that uh, they were showing me the best way they could, even that has limits to it, doesn't it? But with God, his arms outstretched from eternity to eternity. 
And there's no end to the mercy of God. And that's the, that's the picture that he's talking about here. And I'll be honest, most of God's people don't even understand the mercy of God. Then the second thing he says is the length of God. That's the longevity of God. That's the ability to, uh, to understand the plan of God. That's the ability to see God down through history and what he's been doing. And you can't separate the God of the Bible from, the, from history. They're one and the same because God has a plan. And most Christians today can't even, they don't even get that down. And then the third thing he says is the height of God. And that's the trust factor. That's the ability for you and me as a Christian to be able to trust God. There's an old song that we used to sing when I was growing up. Nobody sings it anymore. But it's a song that goes that he's so wide you can't get around him, so low you can't get under him, so high you can't get over him. You must come in at the door. And that's a picture of God all-encompassing everything uh, in our faith. The reason why you and I don't have to worry about the problems in our lives, because if you're really God's child and, you're in, and he's in your heart, he has the ability to look over the obstacles you can't see. Amen. He has the ability to look past the problems you're struggling with right now. That's what he does. But most of God's people can't even get to that. You know, the most of God's people today, and I feel sorry about this, and it's a, but it's a true statement. Most of God's people who ought to have the victorious Christian life, they are some of the most miserable people you've ever saw in your life. They're depressed. They're down in the dumps. I call it Prozac, Christianity. You know, it's a thing where that they're, 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 always, they're always depressed. They're always down in the dumps. There's no victory in their life. And the reason why they are is because they go through their Christian life in a one-dimensional format. At best, some of them go through it in a third-dimensional format. But that's not what God wants. God wants us to be, have the experience of the fullness of God. And the fourth one, the depth of God. That's your fourth dimension to the Word of God. That's God's mind revealed to you through the Word of God. That's God taking you places in the Bible that you never thought you would go. Last week's a great example of that. Last week, we showed you out of Proverbs, when you read that, it, we went places that many of you probably said, I, I never would have thought of that in a million years. That's the depth of the mind of God. That's the beauty of the Bible. And I might add, you know, a lot of God's people have a tough time getting motivated to read the Bible or study the Bible. I understand it. I get it exactly. doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're, you're, a, you're a wicked person. In a lot of cases, it just simply means that nobody ever showed you where the gold really was. I mean, if you're digging in a field and you're hunting for gold and all you're finding is pop bottle tops and empty beer cans, your, your excitement runs out after a while. Amen. I'll show you where the main vein is, brother. Amen. I'll show you where you dig into it. You're going to get the truth of that fourth dimension. Now, let's pick it up where we stopped last week and let's read our text again and We'll pick it up where we left off. So we're in Proverbs chapter 7, and I'm going to read the whole thing, but we're going to pick it up today in verse 10. Here's what it says. It says, For at the window of my house I looked through the casement. I showed you what all that meant last week. And behold, among the simple ones I discerned among the youth a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Now, that's where we, we ended last week, and I, I showed you how all of that fits into the time period we live. I, I took you way down and showed you that there's more here than just what you're reading. I showed you the depth of this and how this applies in your life and my life of where we're at today 
and where we're living. And we already know who this woman is and who the man is. And uh, let's go on now, pick it up in 10 today. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, not in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an imprudent face, said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I prepared my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with mirth and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the goodman is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him, and he will come home at a day appointed. Uh, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With a flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, and as a bird hasteneth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline her ways, nor go astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Now, Father, help us today to, to glean from this all the practical things that you'd have us to see. There's so much here that, that uh, we need to see. And uh, Lord, help us to grasp it and apply it to our own hearts and our own lives. And Lord, uh, we just thank you and praise you uh, for all that. In Jesus' name, a shake we ask it. Amen. The number one thing God wants with you is an intimate relationship spiritually. That's all he wants. That's the number one thing that he died for. The Bible says he loved the church and gave himself for it. If you're saved this morning, you're part of the church. He wants to have a relationship with you through fellowship, through the Word of God. Yet at the same time, the world system out there wants to take that from you. The world system wants to take the love that you would have for God and give it to something else or somebody else. The world system wants to take everything that God died for and put right in your lap to have that relationship and make it of none effect. Nullify it, as the Word says. And I want to show you how this works today. Look at verse 10. We're going to work down through this almost verse by verse, and uh, it won't take us long at all because it's a kind of a short aspect chapter here that it kind of takes care of itself. But I want you to see some things today. It says in verse 10, And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. Now every young man, every young man should hear what I'm about to say, and the women too. The Bible says that this woman, uh, as a harlot, we know that to be the harlot of Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 17, Rome, the Roman Empire. We understand that. And yet, as we come down through here, we see that she has the dress of a harlot. We see that from other places we've looked at, that she's painted up to made to look like a harlot. And uh, she has the, uh, the, as I said, the look of a harlot. She has the speech of a harlot, and she has the ways of a harlot. But here the Holy Spirit of God gives us a great piece of the puzzle of life that every young man uh, should keep behind his mind that he doesn't get caught up and lose what God has for them. Because the woman in question here, the woman in question here dresses this way to get the attention of this young man. 
Notice the Bible says she's subtle of heart. That means she's got a motive. She has a plan. Now, here's the principle, and it's a great principle. Many women in the world today who are not in any way stretch of the imagination harlots will dress to look like a harlot to get a young man who's void of understanding to get his attention drawn to her. That's the way the system works. Now, you see it all the time in the world, and unfortunately too many times in Christianity. There's no modesty today. The world sets our standard of dress not as the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 4, the hidden man in our heart. Now I'm all for looking nice. I am. I really am. And I I have nothing against style. And if you're a visitor here today, I'm not one of these radical guys who who keep snakes down inside here that we play with when you leave and, and, uh, and is against women wearing slacks or, or makeup or anything. I'm with old Bob Jones Sr. If the bar door needs painting, paint that sucker. I'm with you. I have no problem with that. I, I understand style. I get style. I'm not against style. I think you all look lovely here today, ladies. And you guys need a little work, but the ladies here are beautiful. I pride myself not only on knowing the Bible and preaching the Bible and having the greatest uh, church in the, in the world, but I have the most beautiful, uh, the beautiful women in the world. There was one ugly woman in our church. Well, there was until this morning. We have a visitor here back. No, I'm just kidding. It, it, we got the greatest. I'm, I'm trying to make a point. I'm not against any of this. I'm telling you a principle here. I, I'm telling you a principle here. I'm telling you. The women in the world today will try to get a man void of understanding and she'll dress like a harlot or like the world to get his attention. And we need to dress. We need to dress not to draw attention to ourselves. And this is for the guys too. We don't dress to draw attention to ourselves. We dress to draw attention to the Lord. It's just that simple. I mean, uh, I'm all for looking at it. But the Bible says in John 3.3, it says he must, 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And the Bible says that inside all of us is the hidden man of our heart. When you dress to please him, whatever you have on will be absolutely appropriate. Do you know that? That's the concept. We should never dress to show off uh, ourselves. There have been many, many, uh, many a woman... And a guy, too, who looked like a million dollars on the outside, but were absolutely bankrupt and destitute as far as character on the inside. I mean, <laughs> Proverbs eleven twenty two says it. <clears throat> it says, as jewel of gold in a swine's snout, so is a fair woman, which is without discretion. Now, that's a rough verse, but it simply says this. You can dress up a pig put gold earrings on and jewelry on it and all the glitter of the world, but at the end of the day, all you got is a gold-studded pig. See? That's the principle. Now, some of you may not have liked that. You know what? It's called an exacto cutter. You got to have one. You can just cut those portions out of the Bible. I didn't write it. Don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what he said. Now, look at verse 11. She's loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now, I don't know if you have this reference or not, but if you don't, put Proverbs 21, 19. This is the contentious woman that's found in that passage. And she's a brawling woman. She's loudmouth. I mean, she's noisy. She's argumentative. She's a loudmouth. She talks like a sailor. I mean, there are so many jokes around about this kind of lady. It'd be useless to retell them because everybody's heard them. Bible says she's stubborn. Now, that's a good word study in your Bible if you want to take a word study. 
First Samuel chapter 15, verse 23 says that stubbornness is likened to iniquity and idolatry. Uh, idolatry. In short, this woman will reject any kind of authority in her life. She doesn't want to submit to it. She won't allow it. And she gets loud and argumentative. She's got her own way of doing things. And when it comes to God, the church, or ministry, it has to be on her terms. And she'll, she'll do whatever she's got to do, say whatever she's got to say, flash her big eyebrows and smile and say all the pretty things to get whatever she wants. That's the woman here. Look at verse 11. Her feet abide not in her house. She's a busybody. She's always in everybody else's business. She's not a good mother because she's uh, never at home. <clears throat> and from the context, <clears throat> she's never at home because she's always on the hunt for the next victim. A man, any man. She's looking for any guy she can find. And I think this is very important for you guys to understand. Because when you look at this through her subductious ways, she gets the young man who I must keep making the emphasis, he's void of understanding. She says in verse 15, Therefore, because I, I, I came forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. She gets this stupid idiot guy to think he's the one she's been looking for all of her life. Right and it would have been any guy coming down the road. Guys, we are so stupid sometimes. You know that? I cracked on the ladies a little bit, and I'm going to crack on the guys for quite a while. This is, this is what you got here. I mean, you know, it's a thing where, oh, man, it's a, it's a, it's a thing where it's like a story. I heard one time where this guy goes into the bar, and he's standing over there, you know, over the bar, and there's three gorgeous chicks about back where Gary's sitting back there. Didn't look like Gary, but they're back there. <laughs> and and, and, and they're, 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 he's standing over there. You know, he's being Joe Cool. You know how we all used to be? Oh, yeah. Some, or still are, you know. <laughs> and and he, he, he's, he's over there, Joe Cool, man, you know. And he's got a drink in his hand. And he's, he's swaying with the music, you know. Got the gold chain around his neck, you know. And they're over there looking at him and laughing and talking to each other. And now he thinks, boy, they're, and he's, so he kind of gives a Good little smile back, you know. And, and, you know, he thinks they're all zeroed in on him, you know. And he's saying, oh, man, I could take my pick of these three tonight. I'm just going to be over here and be cool because I'm cool. He's over here, you know, and they're giggling, laughing, and he's sucking it all in, you know. And he's thinking, oh, this is really great. And he, he's thinking, man, I tell you. And one of his buddies comes up and says, I don't want to let you know, but your fly's down. <clears throat> they didn't see anything about him. They were laughing how stupid he was. And that's the way guys operate sometimes. You get so intoxicated with everything around you. This woman appeals to the male conceit. And he falls for it. Because he's void of understanding. Absolutely, completely void of understanding. And, and, you know, she says, it says there, I came, I've been waiting for you all my life, and here you are. And he says, oh, boy. Look at verse 12 and 13. She is without now in the streets and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him, kissed him on the mouth, hard. <laughs> and with an imprudent face said unto him. Now, like last week I gave you this picture. Here's the picture. It's a woman roaming the streets at night. We know that night is the church age and a whole collective thing here. 
It's this evil woman, false religion. But here's the practical, roaming the streets at night, hanging out in a corner looking for this guy. She's obviously a pro at it. In this case, doctrinally, she's been doing it for 6,000 years. But note the doctrinal contents last week. She lieth in wait at every corner. Now, that's impossible. She can only be one corner at a time. But in the doctrinal concept, we talked about it last week in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, she's called the mother of harlots. She's on every street corner because through her came all the other harlots that are out there, and she's on every street corner through them. And the practical application is there's a harlot on every street corner, and pretty much in America there's a false church on every street corner. That's how it works. Put that note in your Bible and see if it doesn't catch fire. Look at verse 13. So she caught him, kissed him. Now with an imprudent face said unto him. Now imprudent means shameless, a lack of modesty, indecent. She speaks with an imprudent face. Now in the 20, 21st century, this is called body language. That's the contemporary word for the world we live in today. People say, well, he's my soulmate. She's my soulmate. The only soulmate you could ever have is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get the wrong soulmate, and you'll find out very quickly that that soul didn't mate up very well. You see, when when, when, when you dress the part, when you look the part, when you talk the part, you get the part. And you become the part. We as God's people will either communicate a message to the world for the things of God by what we do with our body or we'll communicate a message to the world with what we do with our body. It's only going to go one way or the other. It's just that simple. Look at 14, 15, and 16. I have peace offerings with me this day. I have paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face. I have found thee. I've decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, carved works with fine linen of Egypt. Now, verse 14, this, this harlot's religious. Now, I like what it says here, if you know your Bible a little bit. It says, I have, I have peace offerings with me. Now, if you know your Bible, if you don't have this reference in, I'd put right down there Leviticus chapter 7, verses 16 through 18. Because back in Leviticus chapters, that chapter back there, it's a passage on talking about eating the leftover sacrificial meat. This woman, who's a religion, appeals to the two basic desires of man's human nature, love and food. And if you know your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, a man can lust after both of them. I don't know if you know it or not, but love and food are the two greatest objects a man can be offered. Self-propagation and self-preservation. In history, look at the Roman orgies that went on with the food and all of the things that took place in Babylon down through history. If you can't get a history book, go rent Animal House with John Belushi. You'll get the whole story. Now that concept is so strong in man. That concept of those two desires is so strong in man. Watch this. That when the Holy Spirit of God wants to appeal to an unsaved man, 
When, an unsa- when God wants to appeal through the Holy Spirit of God to an unsaved man's soul, he will use the exact same two things only in a righteous, holy way. He'll appeal to the same two desires that are the basic desires that man has. He will appeal to a love relationship with Jesus Christ through salvation above none other. And he'll appeal to his appetite by making a wedding supper of the Lamb where you can eat all you want. That's how he does it. Now look at verse 16. Three things here. It says, I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry and carved works with fine linen of Egypt. Now this woman is a complete forgery, a complete fake, and a complete counterfeit. She says, I've decked my bed with tapestries. Now, I don't know what you have in your Bible, but put down Proverbs 31, 22. Because the real tapestries of the real virtuous woman are found in that passage. This woman has counterfeit tapestry. When you go over to the one in Proverbs 31, which is the real deal, the virtuous woman, it's purple and linen, royalty colors, because she is part of the king's family. This woman takes the tapestry and makes it fake. Then she said, carve works. That'll be the idols of all the gods that this woman wants to bring into your world. Then she says the third thing with fine linen of Egypt. Now that's very interesting because Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world. When they come out of Egypt, the last thing Jacob and Joseph said, don't leave my bones in Egypt. Get me out of here. Egypt's the type of the world in the Bible. And so this woman's telling this guy, void of understanding, that that she comes to him with fine linen of Egypt. Now look over at Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Now here's the real one. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. That wife is me and you, by the way, if you ain't figured it out. Now here it comes, verse 8. And to her, the church, you and me, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For here it comes, fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Then you know what this woman does? This woman gives a false sense of righteousness. This is what you see today in Christianity in the world. I told you many, many times, I ain't met a good old-fashioned sinner in 20 years. There are no sinners anymore. We live in a world in Christianity where we think that God doesn't have any holy standards anymore. That God doesn't have a holiness side to him. We think we can go to church and do what we want to do on our terms and do what the world does and still claim to be a child of God. We think we can do all the things the world does, go all the things, talk like them, do everything they do, and still in our minds we think that we are still God's child and God is pleased with us. The problem is you've been hanging out with the wrong woman and you got you some false white linen. You got you some stuff that's not real. Now, that brings up another tremendous study in the Bible. Now, God has standards of holiness. Whether you and I like it or not. But we live in a world that we've lost that concept. Because this woman has come in and she's counterfeited everything that God has And the men and the women who were void of understanding got sucked into it. And now they're at the place in their life where they go to church on Sunday. Hey, I know churches right now today that have gambling ministries. 
I know churches right now today that condone drinking. I know churches right now today that condone all kinds of stuff. You know what? It's none of my business. I don't care. But I might ask the question, how in the world do you deal with an alcoholic when your church condones alcoholics? How do you deal with a guy who's got a gambling addiction when your church has a gambling ministry? What this woman has done is brought in the concept of false righteousness. She's a counterfeit. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but the devil always counterfeits the Lord in everything. I mean, in John chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says God is light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the devil's called light. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, God is called king. Job chapter 41, the devil's called king. In, in Revelation chapter 21, God's got a bride who's a city. And in Revelation chapter 17, the devil's got a bride who's a city. Christ is called a prince in Isaiah 9, 6. The devil's called a prince in John chapter 14, verse 30. God is called God in John 20, 28. The devil's called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. I mean, Christ is a lion, Revelation 5, 5. 1 Peter 5, 8 said the devil goes about as a growing lion. He counterfeits him in everything. They both have a church. They both have a Bible. And they both go to church every Sunday morning. That's what you're up against. You say, well, how do you deal with that? You get understanding. You get discernment. You get perception. You get discretion. Look at verse 17 and 18. I have perfumed my bed with mirth, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, Lord, take us our, our, our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. The smell of perfume in the Bible will always be associated with our relationship with Christ. There's something about the Christian and something about his righteousness that all through the book of Song of Solomon, it's equated back and forth. In Song of Solomon 2, verses 1 through 2, you find a smell of lilies, the smell of roses, and the smell of apples. In 2.13, you find the tender grapes that give a good smell, talking about the church. Song of Solomon chapter 4, it talks about our fellowship with God. And it's likened a garden with fragrant smells of the fruit all mixed together. And in chapter 5, it talks about the smell of mirth and spices. It's probably the original reason why Christ, when he started out his relationship with Adam and Eve, was in a garden that had to be one of the most beautifully smelling places on the planet. Those smells that God finds in the Bible are always a reference to our relationship with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, I'm sure it's the key to it. It talks about that every time you and I preach about Christ's death on the cross, his sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, that was another thing. When they offered up those sacrifices, they burned it on a fire, and they burnt that sacrifice. And the Bible says the thing that appeased God's wrath toward those people was not the fact that they just killed something innocent, but when that smell came up in the nostrils of God of that innocent flesh burning, his anger was appeased, and he forgave them. And the Bible says that when you preach about Christ, who was the ultimate sacrifice, wherever you preach about him, you talk about him, when you witness about him, the Bible says it's a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. This woman counterfeits that. She's like any harlot you've ever seen on television or any harlot you've ever seen on the street corner. She's painted up and she's also perfumed up. And she, she puts forth a, produces a fake smell of a counterfeit man-made relationship. Now, ladies, I say again, I'm not going to preach on perfume. I'm not. 
Don't take this out of context. I'm showing you what perfume is all about. I'm glad you use it. Very glad you use it. <laughs> uh, don't, don't take this in any wrong way. I am with you 100%. But get my point. Don't take it personal, but get my point. I don't care what you use. I don't care. It all smells lovely. I mean, um, I'm just making my point here. I'm trying to get you to see something. This is why women of the world always try to perfume to smell good on the outside to cover the stench on the inside. Now, I did a, I did a little... Let me ask you a question. Would any woman here want your daughter to turn out to be a Paris Hilton? I'm getting a no on that. How about Britney Spears? You sure? Kind of a catchy name, Britney Spears. How about Jennifer Lopez? I got a whole list of them here. I got on the internet. I finally figured out how to do that. <clears throat> All these women got perfume named after them. And you know why they'll make millions and millions and millions of dollars? I'm going to tell you why. When you buy Jennifer Lopez's perfume and you smell like her, in your mind you think you're going to look like her. Need a lot more help than that, baby, let me tell you. <laughs> Buy her perfume and then get over to Sid's body shop and let him get his chisel out and go to work a little bit. I'm just talking to you now. I, 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 I Googled in. I didn't even know what Google was. I thought it was what you said to a little baby and he's in the crib and I just, I Googled it in. The name of women perfume. You wouldn't believe it. It's always named after some kind of sexual encounter or at least some kind of suggestiveness. Obsession. Hi, I'm, 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 I'm obsessed with you. Oh, I'm obsessed with that perfume. Why, you should be. It's obsession. Wicked desire. My passion. Of course, you can buy all of this at Victoria's Secrets. <laughs> Magnetism. <laughs> Encounter. Midnight passion. Boundless love. Euphoria, whatever that means. <laughs> rendezvous. Whereas Rocky would say, rendezvous. <laughs> my favorite is, my favorite is Holstein. I think that's how it's pronounced. I don't know. Every one of them are suggestive. Why couldn't they just say, for women, get sweat buster? <laughs> Underarm bore cleaner. Come with a brass brush. <laughs> Everything you find about this perfume. Because the women of the world, the women of the world want to try to fake the smell that only comes by the beauty that comes from a young lady or a young man in a personal, honorable, loving relationship with the Lord. You can't beat that. And I don't think you should not put perfume on. I'm not saying that at all. 
I'm just saying the real, the real shaver of any woman or any man is the shaver that you have with the sweet shaver of Christ. That's what I'm saying. Look at verse 18. Holstein's still my favorite, though. <laughs> Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with love. Now, solace means comfort. This harlot wants to go on with this love relationship all night. We know that is the church age, doctrinally. We saw it last week. And then it ends when the man of the house comes home in the morning. Fourth watch, 6 a.m. We saw it last week. You see, the world will give us a, a false solace, a false comfort. And, 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 and we deceives us and we buy it because we're void of understanding. We'll leave the protection of the Word of God. We'll leave the protection of what God has given us to protect us. And just like any teenager who, who fights against mom and dad when he's 17 and 18, he thinks he knows more about life than they ever did, and they've lived it through some tough times. And by the time he's 20 or 21 or 22, he figure out he didn't know anything. Look at verse 19 and 20. For the goodman is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. Now, the reference here doctrinally, without a doubt, we know from last week will be the second coming of Christ. Uh, Last week I showed you in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, 37, and it's pretty much standard throughout the Bible, where the Bible says, For the Son of Man is a man taking a far journey. That's a picture of Christ during the church age, going back up to heaven. And it, we saw it, that long journey as we saw last week is, is that it runs 2,400 years from 606 B.C. up to the church age of the rapture, during which time the harlot works her best. Look at verse 20. He hath taken a bag of money with him. That will be the true riches to Israel. That will be the kingdom of heaven, which God took with him when he left back there on his trip in 606 B.C. Read Psalm 78, the whole chapter. That's why I gave it to you. And he will come home in a day appointed. When you find out in the Bible, see Proverbs 31, 8, Jeremiah 46, 17, Daniel 8, 19, Daniel 11, 27, Daniel 11, 29, Daniel 11, 35, always second coming. Always the second coming. Now look at verse 21. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straight away as an ox to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, and as a bird hasteneth to the snare, and knoweth not it is for his life. Her much fair speech. History is full of men who became captive to a woman by the way she dressed, the way she looked, the way she smelled, and the things she says to him. A man void of understanding. He has no perception, no discernment, and no discretion. He gets so intoxicated with her, he just throws God and all he knows, which isn't much, right out the window. In history, I think of Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony was a great Roman guy who was brought to his knees by Cleopatra, who was the queen of Egypt. If you get into the Bible, I think of Samson. We've talked about him a lot the last couple of weeks. Here's Samson that was a deliverer of Israel, a judge. God had a job for him, and he fell to his knees uh, to this woman, Delilah. I think in Matthew chapter 14, verse 3 uh, 3 through 6, Herod. 
Herod, you know, when you study that passage, Herod liked John the Baptist. Bible says that he, he, he liked what he said. He believed a lot what he said. But it, was, but it was John the Baptist who didn't care if he liked him or not, who preached the word of God to him. And he made a reference to the fact that, that there was an adulterous relationship going on with his brother's wife. And the brother's wife didn't like it. And she had a hot daughter who was a belly dancer. And she went in before Herod and did her belly dance all over the place. And Herod, he was just captivated by her belly dancing. <laughs> he was captivated by what she did and how she displayed herself. And after she was done, he says, you know what? That was the greatest belly dance I ever saw. I'm going to give you anything you want except my kingdom because of the way you belly dance. You know what she said by her mama? Give me the head of John the Baptist. That's how John the Baptist got killed. He got killed because some guy was captivated by some belly dancer and his wife and didn't have the courage to stand up. And he, 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 he took the preacher that he liked to listen to, who he probably somewhat believed and knew he was the truth, and had him killed because that woman got the advantage on him. Whoo! History's filled with them, man. Verse 22 says, As the ox to the slaughter, goeth after her straight away as an ox to the slaughter. I think a slaughterhouse is a really good illustration here. Dumb animals, void of understanding. I, I visited a slaughterhouse one time. I always wanted to see it, never will go back again. One of the most, I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I watched, I watched cattle just coming off the trucks by the load, going up that ramp, falling on the other cattle. And the one thing I got out of it, they walked through up there, and here they had an electric thing that just shot them right in the head, and they dumped them in and then skinned them all off. And I just watched them go up there one after the other to the end of their death. I came away mostly moved because I like animals, and I said, I ain't ever doing that again. In fact, it was a long time before I ate another hamburger, probably at least 20, 30 minutes. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, a hamburger's so impersonal, you know. Uh, but but I, the thing I came away with that, and I said, boy, if that isn't life on planet Earth. Amen. People going to hell just following the crowd. Amen. People walking down the ramp out of the truck just following a guy in front of them, and a guy's being killed and put in hell, and they just all go one after the other. That's what I saw in that thing. Amen. That's a great illustration here. That's a great illustration. Because that's what the world does. People just follow the crowd. They follow the world. They don't have the courage to stand apart from everybody else. And a slaughterhouse is a great example. And in this case, the young man meets his death. Now look at verse 22. Or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Now, the stocks that he's talking about here would be like you see in the Early times in America, it made up in England where the guy did something stupid or did something wrong and, and they put him on public display. He'd sit down and put his hands through it and his head through it and he'd stand there and they'd put a sign under this guy stole or this guy did this or this, guy, or this woman did this. And he'd be in stocks uh, right on the city square. This is where our, and people would come and make fun of him and they would laugh at him and they would be the ridicule uh, and the shame of the town. This is where we get the expression, he'll be a laughing stock. That's where it comes from, see? That's where it comes from. And what he's saying here is this, that, that, that if, this, if this woman doesn't get you killed, she certainly will get you made a fool of for all the world to laugh at. Uh, where all the world sees you and you become a laughing stock, she'll make a fool out of you. She'll use you. She will, she will tell you what you want to hear. She will try to get from you what she wants. And then she'll leave you in the end. And she'll dump you in the end. I'm talking about false religion, but you can make the application for yourself. Look at verse 23. 
till a dart strike through the liver. You know, I always thought that was a weird thing. I always thought that that was, a, that was the dumbest thing to say, uh, strike through the liver. I always thought it was just an old English phrase, you know, or something that I didn't know anything about. And, and I and that was years later when I got into the Bible that I saw how comprehensive the Bible is. It's an absolutely right thing uh, when he says uh, strike through the liver. Because loose living, the worldly living, a life of drugs and alcohol will always ruin your liver. That's exactly where it goes. I mean, when you drag alcohol and you're an alcoholic for 40 years, you know what you get? Cirrhosis of the liver. You take drugs, either meth or you take prescription drugs, and you start taking them pills 20 or 30 at a time, and you start building up to that thing, and you think it's fine. You know what it does? It destroys your liver. Your liver is what purifies what you put into your body, and when you don't put, to- when you put toxic things in it that are poison. Your, your, your liver can't handle it, and after, and after 20, 30 years of doing that, you, you, your liver goes, man. Your liver goes. And, and I'll tell you something else. That fool in the stocks of correction, not only does she make a fool out of you, she makes you a prisoner of your sin. You can't get out of it. You can't get out of it. And you can tell. I mean, you can see it. You can see it in people's faces. You can see in the struggles of their life. It, it, it all the, all of the things that go on. And after, you know, after years and years and years and years, it absolutely, you cannot get rid of it. You can't break it. You can't get out from under it. You've subjected yourself to something now. You've allowed this woman and the ways of the world into your life for so long that you can, you are shackled by your ankles and you cannot break the chain. Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, a threefold cord is not easily broken. You can take a little piece of sewing thread and you can snap it apart. You can take it and wrap it around your fingers and break it apart. But you take that same little piece of thread and wrap it around your finger a hundred times and you will die trying to get out from under it. One sin leads to another sin and it builds up into your life that pretty soon it consumes you. It takes you over. You can sit there all you want. I've had people say to me, well, I'm not doing drugs. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I don't do that. And I say to them, I said, you know what? You're probably right. You were probably born with, with pupils as big as pie plates. <laughs> so the love of Jesus could flow through to the world more often. You become a captive to it. Look at 24, 25, 26, and 27. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. I'll just say it right now. It'll either be you'll listen to the words of God's mouth, or you're going to listen to the words of her mouth. There ain't no middle ground. And you're not going to listen to half his words and half her words. It says, attend now to the words of my mouth. You and I will listen to one person or the other. We'll either listen to the words of God or we'll listen to the words of this lady of the evening. Let night not heart decline to her ways, go not astray in her paths. See that thing? The ways of her paths. You stay with her long enough and you're on the path that she follows. You're on her path. You're going her way. And you're not coming back to the other way. You have put yourself in a bind in the, in the stocks. You now have made yourself a prisoner. And you won't do what you need to do. 
and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and you try everything you know how to do except the one thing you should do, and that is fall on your face before God and come clean with him. It says her house, she has, she has cast down many wounded. She shoots her wounded. She doesn't help you. She's not the kind of woman who, when she makes you ill and makes you sick by her sin, feels comfort for you. Her whole goal is to make you sick, to make you more vulnerable, so she can get you more drugs, get you more alcohol, make you hooked on what you're taking, so you can get more. She doesn't care if you're wounded. She wants to kill you. Because her house is the way to hell. Going down to the chambers of death. Now this young man, void of understanding, uh, if you're counting them now, has had four good pitches thrown at him by this woman. Pitch number one was, my old man's not at home. Come on over. Verse 19. Second pitch was, the journey he went on is a long one. Verse 19. Third pitch, it's a business trip, so he won't be home early. Verse 20. He's certain to be gone, fourth pitch, until a certain day, so we won't be interrupted, verse 20. Now, all that is absolutely true. But here's what she didn't tell him. Here's what she left out. Here's what they always leave out. Here's what she neglects to tell this young man that can't figure it out for himself because he's void of understanding. She didn't tell him that you're going to be slaughtered like an ox, verse 22. She didn't tell him you're going to be become a prisoner to your sin, drugs, drinking, Addicted to sin in your life, verse 22. Third thing is, she didn't tell him you're going to get a disease that will kill him probably early in life. The fourth thing is, she didn't tell him that he, she has messed up many a man before him. The fifth thing she didn't tell him, son, there are some men out there who are now dead because of me. The sixth thing she didn't tell him, her house is on the way to hell. And the seventh thing, it's going to be going down to the chambers of death. Now, Chambers of death. During the dark ages. And the dark ages is when this woman ruled. The dark ages I showed you last week on our chart is from there to there. Around 500 AD to 1500 AD on your, on your chart. That's called the dark ages. It's also called the middle ages. It's also called the medieval ages. It was the middle of the evil. And during that time, somebody came up with the idea with a concept of what we know in history as the Iron Maiden. And the Iron Maiden was a, a woman's body made out of iron that was hollowed out that, that had a, a, a hinges on it that closed and opened and um, they put a man inside. And on the, on the front side of it that closed was her face. But when you opened it up, on the inside was steel spikes that come out where your eyes are come out where your hearts are, and come out on all your, your, your vital parts of your body. Uh, and, and what they did was that they put somebody in there, and they tied him in there, and then they slowly cranked that door shut of the Iron Maiden, and as it went shut, the closer it got, those spikes went into his eyes, went into his heart, went into his throat, went into every part of his body, and killed him. And then they opened up the door, there was a trap door there, the body fell down, and it was a neck victim. That's where the Iron Maiden concept come from. It come from this woman who was in the medieval times who destroyed men because she was so beautiful in all of her seductions. That's exactly where this, this Iron Maiden concept come from. Now, I want to leave you with chapter 7 with a story in the Bible. It's a character study in my mind of no equal, in my humble opinion. And it's about a man named John. 
the Apostle John. I don't know you know it or not, but in every way, when you study him as a character study, and we talked about this, Cleon asked a great question Thursday night about how do you determine types in the Bible, and I showed you how to do that in a, in a rudimentary way. And uh, it's a thing where well, that this is an incredible, incredible, credible picture of what your life and my life should be. And it's a perfect picture of what God, I think, expects of us and what we ought to try to attain to. And I don't know if you've ever studied or not. Ever look at the 12 apostles? The 12 apostles represent for us Christianity. Ever look at it? You had 12, one was a phony, Judas. That tells me that not everybody that says they're a Christian is a Christian. Then you had 11 left. Out of the 11 that was left, when really it hit the fan and things came back down when they were coming to get Christ, all all 10 of the 11 hit the road and were gone. There's only one man who went the distance. You know who he was? He was John. John never forsook him. John stayed with him when all the others left him. John was faithful unto the end when all the others left him. Now, I don't know what your goal ought to be. I can't speak for you. I really wouldn't proceed to speak for you, but I'll speak for myself. I have one goal in life. Because I know what's going to come to America, and I know what's going to happen in our, in our areas around us, and it's coming very quickly. And I'm going to tell you this. I only have one goal that I want to be. I want to be that faithful one that goes to the end. I can't speak for you. Wouldn't presume to speak for you. I'm speaking for myself. I want to go to the end and be faithful. I don't want to quit along the way. I don't want to deceive him. I don't want to take everything he's given me. And then when, when he needs me the most, like on the cross, they all left him. I don't want to be like Peter standing around the fire with a little girl coming up and saying, aren't you with him? And she says, he said, no, I'm not with him. And she says, surely you must be with him. I saw you with him. No, I'm not with him. Third time she comes up and he says, I know you're with him. And you know what he did? When he couldn't convince her that he wasn't with Christ, he did the only thing that we all do to convince us, everybody around us that we're not with Christ. The Bible says he let out a string of four-letter cuss words. No blankety-blank, I'm not with that blankety-blank guy. And the minute she heard that, she says, no, he couldn't be with him. I've always thought in my mind, what if that little gal wanted to get saved? What if that little gal came to him because she really wanted to hear about God and what God had done? And I wonder how many times in your life and my life God brings somebody to us, but because we're too busy pretending we're like with the world because we're embarrassed to go to distance with him? You get my message? And I'm not even preaching yet. I'm telling you, John went all the way. John went all the way. I, I told you this Thursday night, John chapter 19, verse 25. Uh, 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 when he's hanging on the cross, John down there uh, is standing next to his mother. Now, in the Bible, we know that John is a type of the church, but we also know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a type of the nation of Israel. And in the middle of this crucifixion, in John chapter 19, in that verse, when he's being crucified, he looks down and he says to John, and he said to his mother, he says, he says, son, behold thy mother, mother, behold thy son. He gave his mother to John. Now, that's very symbolic if you know Romans chapter 11 and Romans chapter 9, because he's a type of the church, she's a type of the nation of Israel, and right there, he just documented that he has given the nation of Israel to the watch care of the church. Romans 9, Romans 11 if you're paying attention with your Bible. Incredible. You know, in John chapter 13, verse 23, John's the only disciple that Jesus says he loves. Now, I know he loved them all. 
I know we love them all. But in the Bible, everything's in there for a reason. John is the only apostle that Jesus said he loved. And somebody says one time, are you telling me that Jesus had a special love for John? And I said, no, I'm telling you that John had a special love for Jesus. That's the deal. God would like to love all of us like he loved John. The problem is not God loving you and me like John. The problem is you and me loving God like John did. That's the problem. At the Last Supper, John chapter 13, verses 18 through 27, Jesus says to them, they're all sitting at the table now, and Jesus says to them, one of you is going to betray me. And the Bible records for us that each one of them, each one of them goes around the table And looks at the Lord and says, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, am I going to be the one to betray you? Lord, is it I? In John chapter 13, 18 through 27, when it comes to John, John says, Lord, who is it? He might have not known who it was, but he knew who it wasn't going to be. It wasn't going to be him. Every other one had inside them that fear that they would betray him. Not John. John went the distance. John looks at him and he says, who is it? I'll kick him out of here. Who is it? He's special. He's special. John's the only man in history in John chapter 13 verse 23 who leans his head on the breast of Jesus and actually hears the heartbeat of God. We talk about hearing God's heart and the heartbeat of God all the time. And the only other person that can can hear the heartbeat of God is you and me in the New Testament through the Word of God, which is God's heart. Read Psalm of Solomon chapter 2, verse 6, because that is God's heartbeat, and we can listen to it just like John did. It was John who was chosen to write The five books of the New Testament. I've told you before, there's five wisdom books in the Old Testament. There's also five wisdom books in the New Testament, and John writes all five of them. He writes the Gospel of John, which is the most intimate book that lays out Christ's deity. He lays out 1 John. He writes 1 John, which is my book that tells me about how to have my relationship and fellowship through the Word of God. He writes then 2 and 3 John, two more books. And they show my relationship to Israel because Israel is laid out in those two books. And then the fifth book, he writes the book of Revelation which shows the whole picture of what God's doing which is what every child of God sitting under the sound of my voice if you've been saved five years or less ought to know today. You and I should be just like John, the apostle. Our greatest example in the Bible. And now we know that there is a woman who is a harlot, who is a prostitute, who wants to stop you and me and take from us the very relationship that we want to have with God. She wants to destroy us. She wants to destroy your family. She wants to destroy your relationship with God. Boy, you never beat the book. She wants to take everything from you. She wants to take your love from God. She wants to destroy you. And in every city in America and around the world, when this harlot, a real harlot, wants to have an encounter with any man to destroy his life, she calls him her John. And let me just say something to you, folks. If you're saved under the sound of my voice this morning, you're either going to be God's John or you're going to be her John. But it's only going to be one or the other. 
You can't have it both ways. Tremendous, tremendous picture. You'll either be Christ John of the New Testament on his bosom, hearing his heartbeat, faithful to the end, or you'll be her John, drunk with the wine of her fornication, destroyed by her seduction, a slave and a prisoner to your sin. And you get to choose which it is. Now, next week, we'll officially start the book of Proverbs. This has been our preparatory. We've got everything down now. We've got all we need to be able to crack this book and to see it, where it goes, and how it lays out. We've had seven chapters of work getting us ready. And now we have everything to find. We're ready to get into that book next week and start with the Proverbs. I'm going to pray here and we'll be dismissed. God bless you today. And the deacons quickly, as soon as we're done, move back to the high school classroom and we'll get our meeting over very quickly. Let's pray. Father, thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the folks that have come out. Thank you for the truth of your word and your blessings upon us. Lord, what a book you've given us. What a masterful design behind the word of God, which so clearly lays out and, and, and partakes for us, Lord, and gives us everything that we need everything that we need to be everything to be. Help us to be the John of the Bible. Help us to be faithful to you unto the end. Help us to love you, uh, Lord, more than anything else in our lives. Help us, to, uh, the Lord, to take care of all the things that you've given us to do. Help us to be found faithful, never to leave, never to run, never to leave you in the lurch, Father, when you need us the most. And there certainly was a day when the Word of God needs to be proclaimed more. It's today. Help us to be found faithful. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Anybody going to the airport down there? Meet you down there around 2.30 or so, and I'll see you down there at the uh, B-17. God bless you. You're dismissed. Make sure you get your camp stuff turned in this morning, and uh, I'll see you this week.